I thought he was dead. I'll, I'll tell you that straight out. I I thought he was done. I thought he was over. And I was not alone. After Iowa, you can't screw up Iowa that bad. Not when you're the front runner. I thought maybe he would bounce back in New Hampshire, but before I even got to New Hampshire, through a mutual friend, I ran into somebody that was connected to the Biden campaign. And this man was drunk. This man was soused. Apparently we had gotten to the uh, uh, party right after he had gone on an epic rant. An epic rant that I later found out was punctuated by the following phrase, America deserves a better choice than one between a socialist and a racist. A few days later, I'm at the Media Hotel in Manchester, New Hampshire, watching those results come in, and a popular television host who I'm talking to tells me, imagine how many campaigns Biden killed because he needed to get into the race. Hell, I was talking to people in South Carolina other folks who have been on the trail with Biden for far longer than I had, had seen far more of him interacting with supporters, with challengers, with everybody. My question was, can anybody tell him anything? And the answer was no. Everyone's terrified of him. This was a ghost ship. Listen to this. I mean, we put some of this in the the episode on Friday from South Carolina. But this is Joe Biden at his rally in South Carolina the day before the voting. That was $900 billion we spent 18 months recovering it. $900 billion. The president used to love doing this the State of the Union message. He never told me he was going to do it. And he says, and by the way, in order to get this done, we're going to turn to Sheriff Joe will do this. <laughs> well, here's what I had to do. I had to go out and find three Republican votes. And this is Bernie Sanders at his rally just before the voting. People into the political process. All the money in the world is not going to be able to stop us. So let us go forward. Tomorrow, let us win the primary here in South Carolina. Let us win the Democratic nomination. Let us defeat Donald Trump. Hopefully you can hear the difference, but I'll tell you the numbers. It was dozens for Biden, over a thousand for Bernie. I've been out here on this podcast saying that I believed Biden would drop out before South Carolina and endorse Mayor Pete because it seemed so clear after what are normally predictive contests in Iowa and New Hampshire that it was time to pass the torch and Buttigieg seemed to be the guy. That didn't happen. And so when Biden made his way to South Carolina, his firewall, what everybody said Ignore the first three states. Normally a suicide plan. Ignore the first three states. It's all going to begin in South Carolina. I thought, sure, he's going to win, especially once he got the Clyburn endorsement. But Bernie's going to keep it close. And then Bernie's going to blow out Joe Biden on Super Tuesday. We saw the Latino outreach in Nevada. We know that the two biggest, richest delegate halls of Super Tuesday are Texas and California. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but that's where a lot of the Latinos are. I thought he was dead. Instead, Joe Biden is your likely nominee for the Democratic Party. The site electionbettingodds.com, which aggregates a various uh, amount of betting sites, including Betfair and Predicted, have Joe Biden at 80% to win the nomination over the past week. And really, that's only the past four days. His stock has risen 59%. 
the man who seemed all but certain to start racking up delegates, maybe not enough to get to 1,991, which which you need to get the nomination on delegates, but certainly enough to have a plurality. Bernie Sanders, now down to 12%. He has lost 35.5. Now take that for what you will. This has been a particularly volatile primary season. But there's no denying what happened last night was a surprise. There's no denying that the moves that the Biden campaign made on Sunday and Monday were winning ones. And you can debate exactly how much was them and how much was outside help. What I know is this. Old Uncle Joe got the better of your boy Justin. But at least I wasn't alone. Friends, foes, observers alike have all been surprised that thanks to Super Tuesday, in all likelihood, Joe Biden will be your Democratic nominee for Senator of the United States of America. And with that, it's at the largesse of everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com that PX3 begins now! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young, joining you as always on this, our Super Tuesday recap show. Oh, God, we have a lot to talk about. We are going to talk about the results, really. I mean, so much to break down. Hard truths for Bernie. The warren of it all. We are going to take a long, lingering, luxurious purview of the flaming wreckage of the Michael Bloomberg campaign. And... This is something that uh, uh, I, I really, I don't think you're going to hear anywhere else today. But I had this counterintuitive take this morning that we would not have had Super Tuesday if we did not have the Nevada caucus. That's what set all these dominoes into motion. So I went back and talked to somebody who was an expert and who was dug into the numbers about exactly uh, what happened in Nevada, why it was so good for Bernie, why it did not translate into a better Super Tuesday. That interview comes up in a little bit. But first, let's all hail the, 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 the great super centrist, the reinvigorated Joe Biden. Oh, man. I mean, some of the big results, the most surprising results. Minnesota. Joe Biden was polling in the low teens in Minnesota. That was a two-way race between Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders. The fact that Klobuchar dropped out, I thought was a mistake. If the point is that you're denying Bernie delegates, then why keep somebody that is polling ahead of him why, why pull her out of the race? Leave, leave it go for a day. Let her, let her drop out the next day. But no, it paid off. It paid off for Biden. I, I, can't, I honestly can't believe it. Maybe more shocking is Massachusetts. This was supposed to be a two-person race between Sanders and Warren. And, and who comes uh, creeping from behind? putting both hands on either of their shoulders and sniffing both of their hair, but Joe Biden. I mean, just just crazy. It looks as if he has now won Texas, which, again, unthinkable. But it just makes me go back to all those moments after Iowa and after New Hampshire when the Bernie folks, man, they could not stop laughing. Couldn't stop laughing at, 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 at the, the centrist corporate media putting up those graphics of Bernie's Hall of uh, the percentage of the vote versus if you combined Biden, Buttigieg, and Klobuchar. If you put all the centrists in a bucket, that that number added up 
to more than Bernie. And man, the Bernie folks could not laugh hard enough at that. Well, I mean, that's like who framed Roger Rabbit. One of these days, you're going to laugh yourself to death. And that's, I think, what we saw there last night as folks, they came together like Voltron. And it looked like it worked. I have repeatedly, repeatedly criticized the Biden campaign. And and let me say this right now, as I stand before you humbled on my prediction that he was going to fall apart, I still say to you, he is a tremendously flawed candidate. And there are elements to not only himself, but his campaign that I don't know whether or not they're going to be able to be fixable. Hell, Jim Clyburn, after the win in South Carolina came out and told reporters that there are problems with Joe Biden's campaign. We will see whether or not this is enough to fix those. Because right now, boy, the entire establishment is going to all be looking for a piece of that campaign. And I don't know whether or not a gigantic influx of, of cooks in the kitchen is going to help him going forward. Now, things are not over. Let me also say that. Bernie, Sandwar- uh, Bernie Sanders is in, I almost said Bernie Land Wars, because this is what's going to happen. This is a land war now. As I am recording this, Joe Biden is about 50 delegates up on Bernie. And we are going to see what happens going forward. But that does bring us to this. I got some hard truths that not only Bernie Sanders, but also some of his supporters have to wrap their heads around. Bernie's movement in 2020, although more focused and certainly more profitable than 2016, according to the numbers last night, did not seem to grow where he needed it to grow for Super Tuesday. Although his outreach with Latino voters is something that is very, very important, not only for the primary, but also in the general, he wasn't able to bring in the black support he needs at this stage, specifically specifically with somebody like Joe Biden that he is trying to compete against. But ultimately, as it often does, I do think that this came down to the issues. The only reason that Biden is acceptable, the only reason why Pete and Amy would join him so readily and that voters of those two candidates would jump ship so agreeably is because they don't agree either personally with Medicare for All and the Green New Deal as they find them too far left, or even if they personally agree with them, they believe that they are not electable issues at least enough that you would consider somebody as flawed as Joe Biden. And here's the point in our program where I'm I'm going to make a kind of I told you so point, not only for what happened last night, but also for going forward. I genuinely think that stuff like the Castro double down is not only a problem for what happened during Super Tuesday, but also in this coming land war. If your goal is to convince the mainstream of the Democratic Party that the programs that you are proposing are something that is very, very important, the last thing you want to do is in any way see those kinds of ambitious proposals or the need for government control over those industries to be connected to something as ugly and brutal as the Castro regime. I said it before, I'll say it again. It doesn't matter that Obama said it. It was dumb when Obama said it, and if the media wouldn't cover for him, no matter what he did or said, then he would have gotten crap for it too. You can't hide behind that. You can't hide behind the media being mean to you. The media's gonna be mean to you. That's just what's going to happen. They're going to be unfair. You have to think about what the message is and whether or not it's getting corrupted by the kinds of comparisons that are unfavorable to your success. Going forward now, 
Bernie needs every delegate he can get. And if he's going to make up ground, something very difficult in this kind of race, then he's going to need to do better than he would expect to do in states like Florida. The Latinos in Florida are not like the Latinos in California or Texas or Nevada. They are primarily Puerto Rican. They're primarily Cuban. And as far as the Cubans go, boy, do they not like anything, anything that shines any kind of positive light at all. No matter how well actually you want to make it, no matter how much you want to say that Obama said it first, they don't cotton to it at all. And now that's something that Joe Biden is going to be able to run against you. Here's the bottom line. Did the establishment of the Democratic Party do everything they could to put Biden in a position to succeed? Of course they did. You knew that that was going to happen. You knew who you were fighting against. Going into this race, you had to be aware that there was going to be an organized opposition to your campaign. We're going to talk a lot more about what Bernie can do going forward in our interview. Here's the bottom line, though. Bernie's in a fight right now, and he's going to have to do something that he doesn't do often. And that's reassess his playbook, learn from the lessons that have just been dealt to him, and go forward. Otherwise, this is over. Politics! This one's gonna feel good. Oh, this one's gonna feel so good! Oh, yes! The campaign undertaker has taken his richest prize! Mike Bloomberg has suspended his campaign and will endorse Joe! Biden. Oh, friends, you know that I have a high level of cynicism that I can tolerate on this show. You know that I appreciate some of the sharper elbows of the political game. I enjoy people who just win at any cost. But man, even I had a hard time swallowing the concept of Michael Bloomberg. And man, it brings me just joy, joy to tell you that he's gone. It's over. Colloquial accounts say that Michael Bloomberg spent $559 million on this campaign, which started in November of last year. For those of you keeping track at home, that is half a billion for his money. He got one magical night where he won American Samoa. That will represent his only state from his Super Tuesday push and his campaign in total. He was not viable in many of the states that he spent most of his money on. For example, he outspent Joe Biden by a significant sum in North Carolina and got blown out for his troubles. Oh, oh, to count the failures. He had no answer for stop and frisk beyond, look, I said I'm sorry. He walked right into Warren's trap on the NDAs. And even for those who longed for a competent technocrat, he could never play that part effectively. This is, and I say this with, with all sincerity, very, 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 very good for not only this race, but also democracy. Michael Bloomberg represented the most cynical way 
that somebody could buy their way into politics, backing the right people, building a network, and then forcing them to endorse you as you take your own vanity run for the White House. It was mask off for the donor class. It is good that it failed. Because if it had not, then we were probably only one or two cycles away from George Soros versus the Koch brothers. And yes, I know that George Soros wasn't born in the United States and that on the other side, two people can't run for president at the same time and it would be hard since one of the Koch brothers is dead. But when you're that rich, why do we even need these rules? But now we can look back on this hilarious experiment for what it is. A rich man's folly, quite possibly the most expensive public humiliation ritual in political history. But still there is damage. I still I can't forget that moment in New Hampshire. Pete Buttigieg had just run a very, very good campaign in Iowa and won. He was running a surging campaign in New Hampshire. And as people were headed to the polls, what was MSNBC talking about? The Michael Bloomberg ad that he was putting on their airwaves. I do think that Michael Bloomberg stunted the Mayor Pete run. I do wonder, without Michael Bloomberg, do we have this Biden Super Tuesday? But let's get back to the numbers, huh? Many of you might remember that when Beto uh, got out of the race, I wanted to go back and see if anyone had ever wasted as much money in as short a time as Beto did. So, for example, Beto raised $17 million, spent it over 201 days, that is $87,000 a day. I thought that was a gaudy sum. So I went back to other campaigns and, and looked up their burn rate. Jeb Bush, for example, he spent uh, raised $155 million over 261 days. Now, that was a super PAC and the official campaign. That means that they spent $597,000 per day. Well, friends, we got a new champion, and, and I can't imagine we are going to live in a world where this record has will ever be broken. This is the legacy of Michael Bloomberg for me. Because Michael Bloomberg's campaign ran for 101 days. He allegedly spent $559 million on that campaign. That means that for every single day that he was in the race, he spent $5,534,653.47. Per day, 5.5 per day. Oh, my God. Oh, bloomers, bloomers. I can't believe he got out before I could hit one of those open bars. Apparently, every event he does, open bar. Ah, that's the real tragedy here. I didn't get to pillage a Bloomberg open bar. 5.5 million a day. All right, so, so we got some stuff to talk about. Uh, number one, of course, TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you can support this show. We had a gigantic... Uh, you guys, continue to to blow it out here uh, during the election year. Thank you. Continue to spread the word. Continue to tell your friends uh, uh, this is a unique show unlike any other. We try to not only bring you a great program twice a week for free, but also... 
for those that dare to support us at the $3 level, we try to go above and beyond to make it worth your while. I appreciate how many of you guys have shown that faith. However, we also do a little thing here where we give away merch of candidates that have departed. And I don't know if you're aware, but four candidates have gotten out of the race since the last time we did a main show. So we're going to have to parcel this out a little bit and we're going to go in the order that they dropped out. So this week we are giving away the Tom Steyer merch. As far as the Steyer merch goes, I have a sign from his uh, 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 Nevada rally where TLC performed. I got a sticker. I may or may not have something else. But if you want it, head to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and write GONG, G-O-N-G, in the comments of the episode released today, March 4th, 2020. That's all you got to do. In a week, I'll, I'll pick somebody. I'll send it out there. I just got the Yang merch out uh, to, to the three people that won that. We had a ton of Yang merch. But boy, we, we got we got a bunch of stuff uh, uh, to give out. We, we got all the Pete stuff to give out. We got all the Amy stuff to give out. Give out. I don't know if we're going to have any Bloomberg stuff because I didn't really uh, gather stuff. But hell, by the time that I speak to you again, we might have Warren merch to give out. In fact, that's my only fear is that I'm going to release this episode and immediately Elizabeth Warren's going to drop out. But that's not what we're doing now. What we're doing now is giving away Tom Steyer merch. Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com, write gong, G-O-N-G, in the comments of this episode. One more thing to tell you. Many of you have listened to my history podcast, Raise the Dead. The audiobook, long delayed, is now available. They, they, uh, Audible decided to surprise me with that on Super Tuesday. So you can head on over to Audible right now. If you sign up, you can get a free book. I don't have a, a code or anything for that. Otherwise, you can buy it outright. Head on over there. Audible.com. Search for Raise the Dead. You can find that on Amazon too with the ebook. It includes a bonus episode that was not in the podcast feed. It's all about the mob and Frank Sinatra. So if you, if you want more of that, go there right now. Go ahead and pick up the audiobook, uh, uh, or you can use a credit on Audible. Check that out. Raise the Dead audiobook, available now, audible.com. As I watched those results come in, I just couldn't help but think, how much did that big Bernie win in Nevada affect what we're seeing right now? Because you can't, collapse into a, a, a big gigantic uh, defense wall if you don't think that the barbarian hordes are coming that's what Nevada showed for Bernie but on the other hand if that was such a blowout why couldn't he replicate it on the same level into Super Tuesday so I realized that I needed to understand Nevada more than I did so I went back no one else is talking to people from Nevada today everyone's talking about a bunch of other stuff we went back and talked to an expert. Dr. Precious Hall is a professor of political science at Truckee Meadows Community College in Reno, Nevada. She joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Nevada uh, is is in our rearview mirror, but it, it, it had a very outsized effect, not only on the race at the time, but certainly to the expectations of where we thought we were going that now might be challenged after Super Tuesday. So let's let's kind of start here with uh, uh, Nevada. Is there anything demographically with that state that... Uh, you would think even going into the caucus would be not representative with some of the states that we saw in Super Tuesday or in South Carolina? Well, I think that for sure one of the greatest things as far as demographics here has to do with the fact that not only do we have a large Latino population in the state, almost 30 percent, which is really unlike many of the other states, uh, many of the other states 
when you compare South Carolina and other Super Tuesday states, they had a large minority population, but not as large of a Latino population per se, with the exception of Texas. So that's one of the major differences. But also, too, when we look at the demographics of Nevada, you have not only at that time was it the largest minority population in a primary event, but also you had the distinguished uh, difference between sort of those more urban suburban voters in Las Vegas and Reno and more rural voters for the rest of the state. So we offered sort of those two dichotomies um, in our state when it came to the caucus. So after Nevada, uh, I was certainly looking at that and saying, okay, this is a sign that Bernie's outreach is for real. They they said they were going to turn out Latinos. They turned out Latinos in a major way. This was a blowout on a level that uh, was beyond the polling at the time. Were there any things that jumped out to you when you look at the data for uh, now that finally all the votes have, uh, the, all the caucus votes have been counted uh, uh, that, that you look at and say, wow, that was interesting or maybe not what I expected? Well, I'm sort of with the same line as you. Going in, we had heard, okay, Bernie's ground game is great here. He was expected to win. He was expected to come in first place. That happened, but the margin with which it happened is what was very surprising and very impressive. The fact that he came not only in first place, but he had more than double the voter turnout than his second the second place winner, which is Joe Biden. So he was projected to win, but the fact that he won by more than 20 percent of the vote was impressive. So that really showed us that he invested a lot of time, he invested a lot of energy in the state, and he reaped the rewards, I believe, I would say exponentially, because the expectation was that he was going to win, but not by as much of the margin of victory that he actually had. The other side of that coin, and this is where we kind of get into what happened last night, is... It didn't seem like a lot of like any of the moderates really gained a lot of uh, a strength that, you know, it, compared to Iowa, New Hampshire, where you could maybe staple together Joe Biden plus Pete Buttigieg plus Amy Klobuchar, then the centrist uh, a mega candidate would beat Bernie. That was not the case in, in Nevada. Not only did Joe Biden not do great, but but neither did Tom Steyer, who put in a bunch of money or Pete Buttigieg, who was coming off strong performances in in the previous two states. Uh, uh, why do you think Nevadans didn't respond to those candidates? Well, um, I'll take each candidate sort of separately. So I think uh, for Tom Steyer, Nevada really sort of was the beginning of the end of his campaign. So for Steyer, it was okay. You know, Iowa, New Hampshire, he wasn't even on the ballot in uh, both of those states for both of those elections. Um, Okay, I've spent money in Nevada. I've spent time with advertising. I've had boots on the ground. I've spent time in South Carolina. So this is really where he as a candidate was expecting to see a big showing, a big turnout. The fact that it not only didn't materialize for him in Nevada in the fact that he spent so much money on advertising, but it also did not materialize for him in South Carolina. You saw that immediate, I have to drop out of the race. Yeah. I don't see a path forward. So I think Nevada really sort of was the beginning of the end for Tom Steyer. For Pete Buttigieg, we have a different scenario. And Pete Buttigieg, um, it's, his candidacy was interesting because pretty early on, he knew and it was apparent that he could not connect with minority voters. He had trouble gaining the African-American vote. He had trouble gaining the Latino vote. And that didn't show itself in Iowa and New Hampshire, but that's because those constituencies are majority white, not just majority. It's a super majority. Overwhelmingly majority. As far as yeah. white. Correct. Yeah. So the fact that he placed well in those states wouldn't be surprising because it wasn't a diverse demographic as far as race and other considerations. So that's why you had, okay, Pete came in first, a narrow first in uh, Iowa, came in second in New Hampshire, but we knew Nevada was going to be the real test for him because Nevada offered a, <clears throat> excuse me, a smaller white population and a larger minority population. So everything that we had been seeing came to fruition in the fact that he could not connect. What was interesting about him was not only did 
he had issues connecting, but it really didn't seem like he tried that much. And I'm not sure what Democrat in the 21st century believes that they could win a national election with the white vote alone. Some of his rhetoric started to change, started to be more inclusive of specifically African-American and Latino voters. But for Pete Buttigieg, I think we really found that it was just too little too late. And it's surprising that he did not try to work, have more of a concerted effort to work on courting the minority vote uh, earlier than he did. Do you think, where do you think that the, the, the correlation is between just, if you're somebody like Pete Buttigieg and you had no national profile effectively six months ago, right? Uh, and now for a lot of voters, you are just introducing yourself writ large how much more difficult is it to introduce yourself into minority communities like the black and Latino voters? Well, the thing with Pete Buttigieg is it would not have been difficult to introduce himself if he had a record of connecting with minority communities as the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He had troubles with the minority community in South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. So if you can't connect with minority communities in a city on a mayoral level, certainly you were not going to think that it was going to be easy to do it on a national level. I believe, and I think it would be have found would have been found true that if he already had a connection uh, going into the race from his experience as mayor, it would not have been as difficult for him to accomplish that. But because the connection wasn't there, there were already issues with the South Bend Police Department and things of that nature. It couldn't translate on a national scale for him. It was sort of uh, came across a little disingenuous for him. And I, dare I say, even though we're not talking about him yet, this was the same issue for Michael Bloomberg as well. Well, sure. Who wasn't even on the ballot in, in Nevada, although <laughs> although he turned out to be probably the biggest loser of the Nevada caucus because his campaign, now that we know where it ends, almost effectively died in Las Vegas when he got uh, embarrassed on the debate stage. Uh, uh let me let me ask you this though for bernie policy wise what were the biggest issues that nevada caucus goers responded to well what was interesting for bernie sanders was one of his yes we know he's a democratic socialist he said it before that's not a secret but one of the biggest trouble spots for him in Nevada was his Medicare for All plan. More specifically, our largest union here, the Culinary Workers Union, and for those who aren't familiar with Nevada, oh uh, no, don't we're be we're all we're, we are we are all here on this podcast. We know <laughs> we've been talking about the Culinary Workers Union for about a year and a half, so we are we are well okay. well versed. So when we talk about the Culinary Workers Union, which has more than 60,000 members in that unit, so we're talking about the members, we have to consider the family. This really was a large voting block in our state. And he really reached a stumbling block in the fact that, one, the Culinary Union uh, refused to officially endorse any particular candidate. Now, on one hand, you might consider, well, if the Culinary Union isn't endorsing a particular candidate, that doesn't speak well of any candidate. But... On the other hand, we have to consider that the Culinary Union took a position in which they said, we are explicitly against Medicare for all. We are explicitly against one of Bernie Sanders' major platform issues. You would think that the Culinary Union would have said, because we're so against this issue, we're going to pick another candidate. They didn't do that, which is interesting in and of itself, because had they officially endorsed another candidate, they might have been signaling to their uh, members, okay, as a group, this is who we want you to support. Obviously, you can't tell people who to vote for, but you can give some pretty strong signals. The fact that they came out and said that they were against Medicare for all, but still did not officially endorse a candidate, that tells me that they knew on some level that the message of Bernie Sanders was connecting with some of their members. And they as a union did not want to be embarrassed by officially endorsing a candidate that wasn't going to win in the state, because then they have larger issues and larger problems. So a major conversation was the Medicare for all issue because of the Culinary Workers Union. But one of the things that tends to be a bit overlooked 
is outside of the Medicare issue, people care about economic issues and economic growth. So one of the things that we know is with the current president in office, he touts that the unemployment rate is so low and people are back to work, but wages have not grown. So what good does it do a person who still has to work 50 or 60 hours a week just to make ends meet? So Bernie Sanders had the great combination of, yes, I care about Medicare for all, but I also want to talk about economic issues and the wealth disparities, the wealth gaps that exist. And his other messages connected with the voters here. And one thing I have to say about Bernie Sanders, regardless of if you like him or not, he is fixed and focused on his message. His message yeah. does not change for any particular audience. Whether or not he made a calculated risk to say, you know what, I'm going to get people from the culinary union on my side and I'm going to stick to my message. Or he said, well, I'm sticking to my message and I don't care if you support me. We have to give him the props for saying, you know what, I believe wholeheartedly in what I'm saying. So I'm not going to switch. I'm not going to alter my message for any particular group. And that has proven to be quite effective. Um, he's also been quite effective in turning out the youth vote, which has made a big difference for Bernie Sanders as well. So it's really been a combination of many things, tapping into some universal issues, sticking with the message of those universal issues and concerns uh, for voters across the country and specifically in Nevada, and being able to target a demographic that typically does not vote um, in these types of elections. So he's really tapped into, he really tapped into quite the combination here in the state of Nevada. All right. Now, we we are obviously talking in the in the aftermath of Super Tuesday, which did not go Bernie Sanders' way, it did not turn out uh, some of the other states, in, including some that had a similar demographics to Nevada, like Texas and California, although obviously not exactly. So we're going to do what isn't replicatable, uh, replicatable beyond Nevada, and then what is. And let's start with what isn't. Uh, uh, give me the argument that Bernie Sanders blew out everybody in Nevada because it was uniquely tailored to his particular skill set. Like, uh, 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 why is this uh, uh, an anomaly as opposed to something that we could have seen replicated uh, more forcefully on Super Tuesday? Well, I think ultimately what you're really talking about is the fact that although we tend to singularly look at campaigns, you have to strategize over the entire length of a campaign. So it's not to say that what Bernie Sanders did here in Nevada is not replicable across other states. It's to say that he didn't do it in an efficient amount of time. And to clarify what I mean by that, you had individuals such as Joe Biden. Yeah. Joe Biden, okay, I didn't win New Hampshire. I didn't win Iowa, but that's okay because I'm already focused on Nevada. I'm already focused on South Carolina. I'm already focused on the Super Tuesday state. We did not see that same level of attention for Bernie Sanders. So you cannot take this national election on a state-by-state -state basis. You have to look at the election in its entirety, and you have to say, okay, yes, I'm going to focus on Nevada, but while I'm focusing on Nevada, I still have to have people in South Carolina. I still have to have a great game in a majority of the Super Tuesday states, and we did not necessarily see him rise to that occasion. So as much as I'd like to say, oh, Nevada is an anomaly, he tailored his message specifically for Nevadans, he did not do that. As I said a few minutes ago, yeah. he's fixed and focused on his message, regardless of where sure. he is and who he's talking to. He is fixed and focused. The mistake that he and his campaign made, in my opinion, is they, that they did not effectively look forward down the road and target other states that would gain help to help to gain delegates in, on Super Tuesday. So that really was the issue in and of itself, because you had if you think about it just in terms of a numbers game, okay, I don't win Iowa, I don't win New Hampshire, I don't win Nevada if I'm Joe Biden. Yeah. That's three out of 50 states. 
I'm not going to dismantle my whole campaign because I didn't come in first in three out of 50 states. But what I will do is look at the campaign in its entirety, target those states that I know I can do well in, those states that I'm marginal in to try to increase my support. And it's okay if I throw away a couple of states or if I don't do well because I have the long game in mind. And that's what we have to understand is this is not, though the media portrays it on a state by state level, on a national election, you're in it for the long haul. That's what you have to target. Now, on the same hand, we saw Michael Bloomberg, who just ended his campaign today, (laughs) rightfully so. (laughs) Um, We saw him targeting Super Tuesday states. It did not turn out for him because he had some messaging issues as well. But if your messaging connects with the voters and if you're willing to utilize the campaign staff that you have to get it done, you can do it. Joe Biden was a perfect example in the sense that he did not have a lot of money because he didn't have momentum early on. So lack of momentum correlates with a lack of people donating to your campaign. Yeah, He did not have a lot of money, but he used the resources that he did have, utilizing people, other members of Congress who are in the state to campaign for him, to speak well of him, to endorse him. He used what he did have in the other states to help him to launch that momentum. And you can guarantee that from this point forward, I mean, the donations have already poured in for Joe Biden because yeah. they, we see that he is a viable candidate and a viable alternative to the democratic socialists that we have. I got to tell you, man, I, I was on, I was on the ground in Iowa, New Hampshire and Nevada. And boy, it, it was surprising to me, surprising to me to see how hard it turned around in South Carolina and to see those results yesterday, because boy, did that campaign from any friends, foes, observers, nobody really seemed to think it was in good shape until it was this unstoppable juggernaut. So I'm going to ask you this uh, Nevada specific question. Do you think Bernie showing in Nevada being so strong helped galvanize the anyone but Bernie camp? Like if Bernie had won by 10% 10% as opposed to 25, would would there be that panic on the other side? I absolutely would say that would be the case. So him winning was not the issue for a lot of people because anybody can win an election by sure. 2%, 3%, 4%. But the fact that you won and you had 20 percentage points more than the candidate that came in second place said that we have a movement here that's building. So if you are someone in the Democratic Party who does not support Bernie Sanders, if you're somebody who does not want to see him become the Democratic nominee, you the, the alarms were going off on February 22nd as the results were coming in because we realized as a country, anybody looking at this could see Bernie Sanders has something, he has support, and if this continues, into Super Tuesday, he's going to run away with the nomination. Now, if you're somebody who supports Bernie Sanders, that's great news. But if you're someone who either is wholeheartedly against Bernie Sanders or you're like many other Americans who you're not wholeheartedly against him, but you wonder if he has the ability to win and you question whether or not he has the ability to win, that's a problem. And something that I've been saying for the past few weeks, the issue in the Democratic Party is really one of do we support and put the person in office whose policies we like the most, or do we support somebody as the nominee that we feel can beat Donald Trump? We have not coalesced around a single candidate that we believe in our country can give us both policy and electability. So really the choice for Democrats in our nation today is whether or not you think that Bernie Sanders with his policies that you may support, maybe not wholeheartedly, but you like his message, you like his policies, do you believe that he as a candidate can beat Donald Trump? And if you don't think that he can beat Donald Trump, even though you may like and support his policies, you're going to go with a candidate that can get him out of office because as national polls and national surveys show, what people are most concerned with is getting the current president out of office. Yeah, 
Even if it's Joe Biden. <laughs> even, if, even if it's even if it's the same old establishment candidate, even if it's Joe Biden that we've seen in political office for 40 plus years, even if it's Joe Biden who has had his own problematic policies that he supported when he was in the Senate, if it means getting the current president out of office, there are people who say, you know what? I'm willing to go with it. It is it is so fascinating to look at those results, Nevada and South Carolina, and the fact that they were so lopsided just led to such a crazy 72 hours between then and Super Tuesday. Oh, uh, my goodness. So much happened in a period of really 48 hours yeah. this past week in our country. You know, from Steyer dropping out, which wasn't the biggest surprise, but I think more, more people were surprised when Buttigieg yeah. ended his campaign. Well, and 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 Amy, I, Amy Klobuchar, who who up till that point was leading in her home state and and and, and showed no uh, sign that she wanted to do anything other than it at the very least win her home state on Super Tuesday. I thought going into this, okay, we're at least going to get through Super Tuesday before the field narrows as much as it did. Yeah. So what that tells me is that after the results came in on Saturday, there were some conversations that were had between the Democratic National Party, the Biden campaign, the Buttigieg campaign, and the Klobuchar campaign. What those conversations were exactly will be up to everyone's guess, but the fact that it happened so abruptly and that these two candidates did not at least hang on through Super Tuesday tells me that there were conversations that were had. What I would like to know, just you know, inquiring minds like to know, sure. was Elizabeth Warren a part of this conversation and she chose not to go with the group? Or was this conversation had without Elizabeth Warren being included in it? Although ideologically... I mean, she's for the wealth tax. She's for the Green New Deal. She's for uh, Medicare for all you would think. And right now, there are a lot of Bernie fans that are listening to this and, and saying, well, no, the failure of Elizabeth Warren is that she didn't collapse into the progressive lane in the way that all the centrists collapsed into the centrist lane. And that if there was not an Elizabeth Warren on the ballot in Massachusetts, if there was not an Elizabeth Warren on the ballot in Minnesota, if there was not an Elizabeth Warren on the ballot in, in Maine, that maybe we're having a different conversation today. Which could entirely be true, but my response to those Bernie supporters would be from a humanistic perspective. Could you blame Elizabeth Warren for, one, wanting to stay in the Super Tuesday race because her stake was going to be included? That's number one. And two, after you see the more centrist candidates dropping out, Kubitschek, yeah. Klobuchar. You, have, as Elizabeth Warren, might see this as an opportunity to gain more votes yourself. Because what Elizabeth Warren has now become is the centrist candidate between a Bernie Sanders and a Joe Biden. She was not that prior to Sunday or Monday after Klobuchar had dropped out. But she has now become the alternative between the two. So she has to see this as an opportunity. Like if she's going to be able to do this, she sees it as a now or never sort of proposition. So can we really blame her for not dropping out when others did? No. From a political and st a strategic perspective, absolutely not. Yeah. Although she is now reassessing her campaign for, for whatever, uh, whatever that means. So we will find out what as happens she, as she should. Yeah. Yeah. We will see what happens going forward. Uh, all right. I don't know how, how much you've dug into the data on, on Texas and California, but compared to Nevada, how did Bernie's or Nevada, sorry. Uh, how did Bernie's message, <laughs> uh, uh, compare to these other Latino heavy States? Well, what's interesting is really, um, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, we could sort of say split the difference in the sense that Sanders took California, Biden took Texas. Now, California does offer a larger share of delegates, but one of the things this is where we start to see is that the Democratic uh, Latinos in California are actually a bit more liberal than the Democratic Latinos in Texas. So it's not surprising that you would see the split, that you would have the Latinos in Texas who are a bit more conservative 
going for the more conservative or centrist candidate in Joe Biden, while the Democratic Latinos in California who are more liberal going for the more liberal candidate. So I'm not surprised by that shift or that split at all, because this is where we're, where we're starting to see the true splinters in the Democratic Party. And this is something, this is a lesson for the Democratic Party, if not for the nation, that the demographics of the country have changing, are changing, and will continue to change. And the way that you have functioned as a party has to change as well, because one message is not getting all of your voters. All right, final question. Both in Nevada and in Super Tuesday, uh, there has been a a theory emerging, and I'm curious whether or not you subscribe to it. Does Bernie Sanders have a black voter problem? Hmm. The short answer to that is yes. The long answer to that is it's not an issue at this point that cannot be overcome. So would I say that Bernie Sanders' black voter problem is on the level of Pete Buttigieg's black voter problem? Absolutely not. I believe that there are some African Americans who are for Bernie Sanders, and there are some who are confused about his candidacy, and there are some who are absolutely against. Where Bernie Sanders stands to gain with African Americans is in that middle section that still has some confusion on his candidacy, who really, they're not sure if they can count on him to win. So what Bernie Sanders needs to do, I'm not sure that he's even willing to do this, because like I said, fixed and focused on his message, he has to start talking about the electability factor. Because he could gain votes the more that he could convince them that he could beat Donald Trump. Yeah. That's his major issue. So, yes, he does have an issue connecting to black voters. It's not as much of an issue as Pete Buttigieg had. There's a large group that he could stand to gain if he starts to shift and talk about his electability. Um, Yes, people care about the policies, but he has to come to the realization that more people in this country per national polls aren't necessarily about policies. They're about getting the current president out of office. And that's an important consideration. That is an important factor. You know, on the stump, he he often kind of hand waves that uh, or at least has in the past. We'll see where he goes with it now uh, and just says, well, look at the polls. Look at the polls. You know, I'm, I'm doing well, according to the polls. But if you see based on the election results, at least last night, uh, there might need to be a little bit more of a fleshing out of exactly how he will beat Trump. Uh, uh, because it looks like many Democrats weren't exactly buying it. My response to him would be, look at the polls. Yeah. <laughs> this is he tells his response to us as a country is to look at the polls. My response to him is to look at the polls. Because now the bigger issue becomes, if you as Bernie Sanders become the Democratic nominee, how many Democrats will either choose not to vote because they don't want you in office or how many people on the cusp may turn to supporting the current president in office for another four years. That becomes the ultimate question when we look at who becomes the potential nominee for the Democratic Party. Well, we can leave it there. Dr. Precious Hall is a professor of political science at Truckee Meadows Community College in Reno, Nevada. Thank you so much, Dr. Hall, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that will bring us to the end of our Super Tuesday episode. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Dennis, Brad, David, Milkleg, Louis J. Milius, Paul, Michael, Jonathan, The Jen, Nicholas, Adam, Ola, and Angela, Zach, Chad, Andrew, Will, Peter, Nick, Frozen, Summers, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Squids, Mixtape, Adam, D. Laser, Andy, Paul, and... Mike, you want to join their ranks? Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One more reminder that the audiobook for my history series, Raise the Dead, Nixon versus Kennedy, is available now on Audible. If you're unfamiliar with the premise, it's all about the 1960 election and how the lessons learned there could have prepared us more for the 2016 election. You can get the entire series, including a bonus episode that was not recorded 
or, or not, not put out in the initial podcast, right now on Audible. Raise the Dead, the audiobook on Audible. Go get it right now. You want to send me some feedback? The Young American at gmail.com. You want to hit me up on social media? Justin R. Young on Twitter. Justin R. Young on Instagram. And if you want to see me talk politics live a couple days a week, head on over to Twitch, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, some shows talk about politics. Others. Well, you know, they talk about politics. I saw another one the other day that was talking about politics, but this, this, friends, is the only show that talks about all three! Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>